If you are new here with us, uh, again, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the people who has the privilege of giving a little bit of leadership to this community. And, uh, and if you are new, I would love to, to get to know you. Uh, that's part of my, my role here is to help people who are new uh, go from the place of being guests to being family. And so uh, we'd love to, to help you kind of work through that pathway. Um, really quick, we are in the middle, not in the middle, the end of a series called Questioning God. And, and if you are new with us, it might partially be because of this series that you are someone who's on a journey and your, your uh, experience has shown you that uh, there might be something more out there and you want to know how other people are dealing with these claims. And so our hope is uh, as you come to join us that uh, you can see that we firmly believe that the Christian message makes the most sense of the life as we see it. Uh, really quick too, for those of you who have been here for a long time, you hear us say this, uh, but typically what we do is we walk through the Bible verse by verse. Uh, this series is a little bit different. It's, it's kind of tackling some deep intellectual questions. So uh, at times it's going to feel a little bit more like a lecture. Uh, so for those of you who are like cerebral, like you listen to podcasts by professors, you're going to be like, yes, this is my jam. Uh, for those of you who are like, man, I just came here for like my weekly pump up. I'm sorry. <laughs> my wife is one of those weekly pump up people. Uh, so I fully, uh, I fully expect that she might sleep through this, but Anyway, the, uh, <laughs> the question that we are, are finishing off this series with is, uh, is a combination of, of what we've been wrestling through. And as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's the question of which worldview, which perspective on life, the deep ways that we kind of observe the world or filter what we experience through the world makes the most sense of our regular lived out experience. And our contention throughout the series has been that the Christian worldview is the one that makes the most sense. And so the final question that we're going to seek to answer today is, is it actually reasonable to believe in Christianity. And spoiler alert, uh, I actually think it is. So uh, my goal this, this uh, Sunday is to, to kind of work through that. Uh, but before we jump into that, I, I do want to recognize that there are going to be some uh, preconceptions that we're entering this conversation in with. Uh, one of those preconceptions is that uh, we're going to assume that it is already reasonable to believe in the divine, that it is already reasonable to believe in God. I suspect if you're here this morning that at the very least you believe that there is something more out there. Uh, so we're not trying to tackle the, uh, the hard kind of uh, question of is, is God real? Does he exist? Is it reasonable to believe in him? And if you're in that place where you're like, yeah, I really want to wrestle through that question either for yourself and conversations with other people or just for where you're at right now, uh, there should be a, a couple of books behind me just posted on the screen. These are phenomenal books that uh, deal with that question. So grab your phone out, take pictures. The first two by Tim Keller, uh, really easy reads, uh, quite, quite accessible. The second are by a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga, uh, and he does a really good philosophical job, very much more academic and deep, but great resources there. All right, so we are going to do something that may seem odd in light of this question, but we're actually going to open our Bibles. So if you have them, you can open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we have them right over here for free, our gift to you, or of course, you can always download one from the App Store on your phone. Uh, just to give us a little bit of context about what's going on in this passage of scripture. So there's an early follower of Jesus and his name's the Apostle Paul, or his name's Paul and he's an apostle, uh, meaning a, a follower of Jesus. And uh, Paul has started these churches, these uh, Christ-following, Jesus-following movements all around the ancient world. And one is in this Greek city of Corinth. 
And there's this theological contention that is being debated. And Christians and Jews believe that God is at work in the world, restoring all things, renewing all things, bringing it to a culminating place where it is uh, made uh, perfect again. And the Christian and Jewish uh, contention is that at that point, those people who have chosen to follow Jesus, who he has called to his name, would be resurrected, would be renewed and be able to live in this world. And so there's this debate going on of whether this theological point is true or not. And the Apostle Paul is going to make this claim. And I'm just going to read it for you. So it starts off in verse 12 of chapter 15. He says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And catch this, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying, all of Christianity, everything that we claim, rests on the fact that Jesus is who he said he is, and that he has risen from the dead. Why is that? Let's keep reading. Verse 15, more than that, we are found then to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he uh, did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, man, if, if we're preaching this message and it's not true, then we're a bunch of filthy liars and you shouldn't believe anything we say. Anything we call you to live by, anything we call you to do, if this one thing is untrue, then it's all a bunch of, of uh, I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying this. It's, <laughs> it's, it's all a bunch of stuff that you should not be believing. <laughs> Verse 16. Had a little bit of an insight into the depravity of my mind right there. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are the most to be pitied. Paul makes this contention. He says, in order for Christianity to stand... This one thing must be true. And there's, there's sort of an implicit thing and an explicit thing. So the implicit thing is this contention that in, in his life and death, Jesus has the ability to forgive us of our sins. And if you know anything about Jewish religion, which birthed Christianity, you know that the belief is that only God can forgive sins. So in essence, what Paul is claiming here is he's saying that Jesus is God. And then the second way that he is uh, making a claim for how Christianity stands is that he did indeed rise from the dead. And so according to the Apostle Paul, and I think almost any Christian would agree with this, these two things are foundational for Christian belief. If these things are not true, then we could have all slept in this morning. I had brunch. I don't know the last time I had Sunday brunch, but it sounds like a really fun thing. All right, so uh, my contention today is that I'm going to wrestle through this question, but I'm going to zero in on those two points. Number one, is Jesus divine? Did he uh, accomplish what he said he could accomplish as a divine person? And number two, did the resurrection actually happen? And there's uh, three ways that I'm going to do this. And so uh, I'm going to answer three questions for us. So the first question is this. Isn't it true that even if Jesus existed 
And the Bible's account of him can be somewhat trusted for historical accuracy that he never actually claimed to be God. Now, this isn't maybe as common now, but in past centuries, uh, there has been sort of this uh, faux idea of uh, this uh, kind of uh, just this, uh, this popular idea of saying that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Love him. He says really, really great things. We can learn a lot from him. And so we're going to ask, is that all Jesus is? The second question we're going to ask kind of goes a little bit deeper. So the question is, how do I know if Jesus even existed? Isn't Jesus more or less kind of like the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus? You know, you whip him out for holidays. He has like some fun themes that you kind of get to play along with. But really, he's just this legendary figure. Third question that I'm going to ask today is, even if Jesus did exist as a historical person, even if we can prove that, yes, there was some person that lived 2,000 years ago named Jesus who did a few things that are recorded in the Bible, isn't all the miracle and God stuff just made up? Isn't it kind of like Greek mythology? You know, you have these gods and goddesses and they do crazy things. And it's just kind of a way for us who are uh, maybe not as aware of the scientific processes that bring the world together, a way to explain those things. So this is the, the path that we're going to take. I'm going to try and uh, uh, tackle each of these questions for us. And, uh, and hopefully through it, uh, you will be convinced as I am that there is uh, not only uh, some good reason to believe in the Christian message, but actually uh, very good evidence that this is indeed the worldview that actually makes the most sense of our lived out reality. So let me begin with that first question. Isn't, Jesus, isn't it true that even if Jesus existed as the, Bible, uh, it, as the Bible's accounts of him are told, that uh, the Bible never actually claims that Jesus is God, that Jesus himself never claims that he is God? Well, uh, for this one, it's pretty easy. We're not going to take a ton of time in this, but let's, uh, let's look at our Bibles. So if you have a Bible again, open it up to uh, John chapter 14. And we're going to be reading in uh, just a part of verse 9. So uh, just a little context here. Jesus is talking to his earliest followers. John, who wrote this book, is one of the uh, 12 disciples that lived life with Jesus for three years. And he's recording this long, long speech and uh, prayers that Jesus has uh, been given on this Passover meal, this uh, religious festival before he uh, eventually gets crucified. And Jesus is talking to them. And he says this in verse 9. Uh, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, well, who is he talking about? Well, Father was, uh, again, in Jewish context, a way of talking about God. So Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you have seen God. Ergo, I am God. Now, if that's not explicit enough for you, let's flip back to John chapter 8. Again, a little bit of context here. Jesus is in the center of Jewish worship. He's at the temple and he's making claims about himself. And we see at the very end here, in verse 58 of chapter 8, says this. Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And listen to how they respond. It says, At this time they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they want to stone him? because they believe what Jesus had just spoken was blasphemy. Again, if you're familiar with the Jewish scriptures, you know that Abraham was this prototypical father of the nation. And so Jesus is saying, man, before Abraham existed, which was like uh, 2,500 years before his life, 
I existed, but he uses a specific term, I am. And this is the way that God had chosen to reveal himself to the people of Israel. It was his sacred name, Yahweh, I am. And it is not any more explicit that Jesus could be. He is making a claim that he is indeed God. So at the very least, we must say that the Bible does make the claim that Jesus is God, that Jesus himself in the Bible makes that claim. There's a scholar, uh, a writer from the past century named C.S. Lewis. You may be familiar with his children's works, The Chronicles of Narnia. And he also does a great deal of nonfiction. And in a, a book he wrote called Mere Christianity, he has this essay called Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. And throughout it, he's, he's talking to the people of his era who are making this claim that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. And he says, look at what Jesus said. You can't claim that someone who made these claims is a good moral teacher. Because if someone goes around claiming that they are God, either they are a filthy liar, in which case, how can you trust anything that they're saying? Two, they're a crazy person. Again, how can you trust anything that they're saying? Or they are who they say they are. And in the case of Jesus, that makes him our Lord and our God. He finishes off his essay by saying this, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, for he has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. So you might be thinking, great, the Bible says some stuff about Jesus, but how do we know that the Bible can be trusted? I mean, how do we even know Jesus existed? What is the historical evidence for Jesus? Again, isn't he kind of more like the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus? Well, it's interesting that you would maybe have that question because there is a small minority of scholars that make this claim. And they've created a, a movement called the Christ Myth Theory. One of these scholars, a man by the name of Robert Price, uh, articulates this theory in this way. He says, if there was a historical Jesus lying back behind the gospel Christ, so that the person that's recorded in the Bible, he can never be recovered. If there ever was a historical Jesus, there isn't one anymore. The contention of Robert Price and several other scholars that would fit into his camp is that even if there was a historical person in which the Bible is based off of, it's so layered in myth and legend and the works of individual communities that we can't know anything about that person. But there is a reason that this group of scholars is in the vast minority. It's because as historians look at the evidence, there is an overwhelming case to prove that there was a historical person named Jesus, that he lived in the first century and that he was crucified, that he claimed to be the Messiah or the coming king of the Jewish people. One such scholar, a man by the name of Bart Ehrman, who would not claim to be a Christian, he would say he's agnostic, he believes that there is something out there, but he believes that this is not the pathway to that. He wrote a book to actually critique this camp and it's called, Did Jesus Exist? And essentially in the book, he outlines a, a, a great deal of the case for this. Uh, but uh, in an interview I, I recently read with him, he was able to boil it down to the way that historians actually tackle figuring out if something is real or not. 
And there's three criteria that they use. It's very similar to a detective. So how many people watch like detective shows, Law and Order, or anything like that? Yeah, a few of you. Um, this is like ancient CSI, so to speak, or ancient detective work. You're going to put your Sherlock Holmes hat on, whip out the, uh, the microscope, and kind of just see what you can see. And so the first criteria is what we would call multiple attestation. But, I mean, that's a really weird word. We don't use attestation very often. Uh, so the way I like to think of it is, like, you're checking out to see if there are multiple witnesses. So you're at the scene of the crime. You're looking around, and you're saying, who saw this event? Who saw it? And there's a couple of things when you're looking for multiple witnesses that you want to know. Is there any reason that these people would be grouping together to kind of uh, make the same story up? You know, maybe they were in on it. And so oftentimes, when historians are looking at ancient texts to see events, uh, what they're looking for is, is there a bias? Is there something there that someone would want to make stuff up? So it's good if you have multiple witnesses, because multiple witnesses means multiple perspectives. And of course, the claim that Bart Ehrman makes is that the Bible overwhelmingly has multiple witnesses in within it, but also without of it in uh, historians that were not part of, of the Christian faith. So, of course, within the Bible, we have the, three, the four accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels. And, and uh, most historians would believe that Mark was written first. Uh, Matthew and Luke used Mark as a reference point and then had uh, material people that they talked to, uh, sayings of Jesus that were recorded outside of that, that they worked with to build their versions. But we also have the book of John, which is completely independent and yet claims many of the same stories as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And on top of that, we have the works of Paul and other epistle writers, other people who are writing letters, all claiming facts that line up together about who Jesus is as a historical person. Outside of the Christian faith, outside of the Bible, we have the works of the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote extensively about that period of time and mentions Jesus at a couple different points in his works. And within 80 to 100 years, which may seem like a long time for us, but when we're talking about historical accounts, it's actually a very small time. We have two Roman historians, Tacitus and Pliny, who also record facts about Jesus' life. So as we put our detective hat on, we put this under the microscope, we can say, yeah, there's plenty of, of witness to show that Jesus was at least a historical figure. Now, the second criterion that uh, Bart Ehrman suggests is, is he calls it dissimilarity. I like to think of it as motive. So what's the motive behind someone writing this? Now, a lot of ancient history is actually ancient propaganda. You're a king, you want people to think you're awesome, so you get people to write awesome things about you. And so, of course, when historians are trying to figure out if something is true or not, the first question that they're going to ask is, would there be a reason for this person to write this if it wasn't true? And if there is, it doesn't mean it isn't true. It means that it is suspect. Now, what's interesting, again, about the Bible is that when you look at what's written about Jesus, it doesn't seem to match any known motive of the time. I'll give you one example. We know from other writings that came out of the Jewish faith that there was no widespread belief that the Messiah should die. No one was expecting that the coming king of the Jews would go to the cross. So the question that then has to be answered is, why would someone just make that up? I mean, we have other people who claim to be messiahs who also died, and no one goes back and says, well, that person actually was a messiah. 
That's usually the end of it. So at the very least, we must conclude that the people who are making this claim actually believed it to be true. The final criterion is that things must plausibly fit their context. Let me give you an example. Suppose you're reading a story about World War II and you're reading a scene and it's talking about something that Hitler is doing. Hitler's on his iPhone talking to a general at the front line. What is not supposed to be in this picture? You got it, iPhone. Now, no one would read that and think this is a historically accurate account. Why? Because iPhones weren't invented at that time. And it's the same thing with the Bible or with any historical account. Uh, people will read it and say, well, was this belief system regularly uh, shown at this time? Was this object regularly developed at this time? Was this technology available at this time? Now, what's interesting is there are accounts uh, in kind of the broader uh, Christian movement of the ancient world that people can discredit, and they're called the Gnostic Gospels. And there are a few conspiracy theorist types like Dan Brown who want to say, oh, these were just suppressed Gospels that happened at the same time, but there's problems with them. Number one problem is that uh, the belief systems that they espouse just did not exist in the first century. They didn't come into widespread belief until 200 years later. What's interesting about the gospel accounts, the works of Paul and other letters, is that they all plausibly fit the context of that moment. So as I share this with you, I hope you can see my contention that to hold the position that Jesus as a person never existed in history would actually be to look at overwhelming evidence to the contrary and yet ignore it. It'd be on the same level as those who espoused a flat earth theory, those who are Holocaust deniers and conspiracy theorists around 9-11. In the face of overwhelming evidence, what this points to is that there is a willful step away from that. And, and this is why Bart Ehrman felt the need to write to these scholars, not because he's interested in defending the Christian faith, but he said, you're overplaying your hand. You're showing that you are so frustrated with Christianity that you're going to do whatever you want, even ignore the vast historical evidence to try and make this claim to discredit it. And he's frustrated because he's saying that is a step of faith. That's the same vein as someone who is coming from a faith background. The third objection or third question I want to deal with today is the question of the Bible's record. So even if we can, and I think we have just shown that we can overwhelmingly say that Jesus was a historical figure, what about the things that the Bible claims about him? That he is God, that he did miracles, that he rose from the dead. Again, isn't that just like Greek mythology? Isn't that like a Hercules story for Christian people? You know, you have that epic hero. He's kind of half man, half God, going around with a sword, fighting dragons and rescuing maidens. Well, I want to I tackle two underlying assumptions that I believe have led to this view. The first assumption is the assumption that miracles or miraculous acts or supernatural acts can't happen. And there's a problem with this. And the problem is, is that you cannot prove this point. Let me show you. Let me say, this happened in the Bible. Someone had a demon. They got cast out. Or someone was uh, sick and they got healed. And you say, well, 
that is obviously fake. And I would ask why. You say, well, because miracles don't happen. Demons don't exist. And I would ask, how do you know? What would you answer? Because they don't happen and they don't exist. Okay? Prove it. How would you prove it? Maybe science? Here's the problem. By definition, supernatural things are supernatural, which means a process that judges how natural things work cannot be applied to supernatural things. Do you get what I'm saying here? It's a circular argument. How do you prove supernatural things? Well, it can't be through science. Because by definition, this is outside of the realm that science can judge. You don't have to believe with me. You don't have to believe this point with me. But what I want you to see is that in order for you to hold the position that supernatural things don't take place, you are actually taking a step of faith. You can't scientifically prove that they don't happen in the same way that I can't necessarily scientifically prove that they do. Now, don't get me wrong. There are lots of other ways to ascertain truth, like experience like other people's experience. Plenty of reasons that we have to believe what we do. But my point and contention is to write something off carte blanche because you say it doesn't happen, you don't actually have good grounds and a scientific perspective to make that claim. And so in that moment, you have to make a truth claim based on faith. Second underlying reason. The the uh, way that people often look at the Bible is they look at it kind of like a centuries-old telephone game. Uh, and the, the scholarship term for this is uh, that studies how this works is form criticism. But let me, let me kind of uh, build this out for you. So how many of you are familiar with, like, fish stories? You know what I'm talking about, fish stories. So you start off, and, you know, you go fishing. You catch a, you know, you catch a trout. It's like this big go home and you tell your wife, hey, I caught a fish today. And she's like, oh, tell me about it. You tell her a story. Suddenly, the fish is this big. You know, down the road, you have kids and you really want to tell them how awesome a dad you are. So you're telling them your fish story. And suddenly, the fish is this big. Well, by the time you get to grandkids, you were out fishing in a storm in the middle of the night and you caught the Loch Ness Monster in Langford Lake. <laughs> right? Fish stories. You know what I'm talking about. This is the assumption that, uh, that scholars have of how the Bible got formed. They say, well, you know, it started off with a small fish, Jesus, a historical person. But over time, different people got a hold of this story. And, you know, this community over here added this detail. This community over here added that detail. And before long, Jesus is God, and he's doing miracles, and all this crazy stuff happened. Okay, well, let's actually look at the evidence for this. Now, in particular, this particular... Uh, in the way that this particular brand of scholarship developed was actually studying European folklore. So you guys have maybe heard of the Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, Grimm's fairy tales have evolved over hundreds of years, and, and scholars actually believe that some of them are based on real stories. But what happened is that a community would get this story, and you know it would pass it along, and each person would add their little piece to it until it became this fantasy fossil. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Until it became blown out of proportion and you had all these things added to it that were uh, not, not real. <laughs> but 
The problem when applying this to the biblical culture is that the biblical culture was a lot different. You see, the people in the ancient Near East did not tell fish stories. They actually told what I would call birth stories. Uh, What I mean by birth stories is this. When I was growing up, I would uh, hear from my parents, you know, every once in a while, the story of my birth. I know, for example, that the night before, I was born on New Year's Day, so the night before that my parents were at a New Year's party. They were up late. I know that my dad told my mom before bed, whatever happens, don't wake me up. (laughs) And in the middle of the night, my mom's water broke, and she woke my dad up. I know that she was in, in labor for a, a while. I was born uh, at uh, 9, I think, uh, 8 p.m. in Alberta time in Grand Prairie, Alberta. I know these things as facts. Now, my parents might have different perspectives. And just with you, I might have slightly different perspectives. There might be little nuances in the details, but overall, the facts will remain the same. As I pass this on to my children, the facts will remain the same. What's the difference? The difference is I am intentionally telling history. This isn't a story. I don't feel a need, nor would it be good for me to actually elaborate it. I mean, I could, I guess, but... (laughs) This is this is actually the culture, the way that the culture uh, that formed the Bible worked. Is uh, it was an oral tradition culture an oral history culture. And it was very rigid in the rules about how you would pass things on. And so even though the Bible wasn't written until, in some cases, 20 to 30 years after Jesus' life, we can have good assurance that the people who were passing on the details, they were telling birth stories and not fish stories. But that begs another point, which is that in, the, in order for fish stories to really develop and grow, They have to have hundreds of years to do that. Why? Because if it happens in the first few decades, there are people still alive who can refute those stories. But what's very interesting about the Bible's account is that we know the Apostle Paul writing within 20 years of Jesus' death records facts about the historical Jesus. Within 30 to 50 years of Jesus' life and death, we have the gospel writers writing accounts. What does that mean? Well, it means that they have not had enough time to actually create fish stories. So number one, culture does not tell fish stories. They tell birth stories. Number two, there's not even enough time, even if they wanted to tell fish stories. But the third and maybe the most convincing, uh, or the, the, the most convincing, I think, reason for this is to ask about motivation. And again, we're talking about a specific culture. This Jewish culture was monotheistic, which means they believed in only one God. They were the oddballs of that era. But what's so phenomenally interesting is how rigid they were in this belief. Again, you saw that story about Jesus. They were ready to stone him. And we know again from history and from the time, from other writings, that to claim anyone to be God and still to claim to be a Jewish person, that would have been unforeseeable. Secondly, we know that there was no large expectation that the Messiah would or should die, as we mentioned earlier, but probably finally and most convincingly, people just don't die for a hoax. If they were making it up, why would so many of them go to their grave in horrendous ways, be displaced from their communities, be pushed to the edges of society, all for some elaborate joke? So at the very least, we must contend 
that the earliest followers of Jesus were in fact convinced that the claims that they were making about him were true. And this begs the question, how is it then that Jesus, against all odds, steps into a community that was the least likely to believe his claims and yet convinced hundreds of early Jewish followers that number one, he was God. Number two, he had the ability to forgive sins. I don't want to belabor this point, so I'm just going to give you uh, three answers here, or two answers here. The first is that I believe it must have been his extraordinary life. Tim Keller, who we've relied on heavily as we've taught this series, says this, it is extraordinarily difficult to claim to be perfect and divine and then get people who actually live with you to believe it. Trust me, I tried really hard when I first got married to to convince my wife that I was perfect. I didn't even last an hour. We were in the car and I think we got into a fight on the way to the hotel after. (laughs) But listen to this. Listen to what Keller says. But Jesus did it. What a life he must have lived. What a life he must have lived to convince people that he was perfect and that he was God. The man who loved and healed the broken, who turned the religious establishment on its head, and who claimed that in and of himself he could take on the consequence for our evil. When you think about the story of Christianity, is it not something that even if you don't believe it's true, that you would like it to be? To know that this is not all there is. I mean, listen to the news. Listen to our election campaigns. That's depressing stuff. You know, we got climate crises. We have boys who are in manhunts because they went on a killing spree. We have fathers who leave their child out by a dumpster who they beat to death. Like, this is horrible stuff. And if this is all there is, is that not a depressing thought? Doesn't your heart long for something more? Doesn't your heart long for someone to come and make things right? Doesn't your heart long for a day when all the garbage of our world, the ecological injustice, the human rights violations, the family breakdown, poverty and hunger and crime, hatred is gone? There's an interesting character developed by C.S. Lewis in one of his children's books called The uh, Silver Chair. This character's name is Puddleglum. That's right, Puddleglum. He's like C.S. Lewis's version of Eeyore, like the glass half-empty kind of person. There's an interesting scene, though, that that Lewis uh, writes, and I think it's helpful as we think about this question of Jesus. Uh, this scene uh, that Puddleglum finds himself in with a few other characters is he's trapped in this underground uh, kingdom ruled by this witch. And she's trying to keep them there. And so she casts this sort of spell or, I don't know, use some hallucinogen or something like that. Uh, and she starts telling them that, you know, you think there's this overworld above, but you're just making this up out of uh, trying to beautify the things that are actually in existence. You think there's a sun, but really all you're doing is looking at lamp. And, and, and making it up in your head. You think there's grass, but all there is is stalagmites and stalactites. 
Potoglam says this, Turner, and I, I think it's impactful. He says, suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass, sun and moon and stars, and Aslan, who is the Jesus character of, of C.S. Lewis's story himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that, in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. Suppose this is all there is. It strikes me as a pretty poor one. But there's good news. Because the Bible doesn't just claim that Jesus is a nice idea. And as you've seen, and I hope you are seeing, there's good, good reasonable grounds to believe that he is not just a nice idea, that he is in fact who he said he is. Second reason I think he was able to convince his followers of this is the resurrection. What kind of event in history would be so transformative that it would cause people who have no reason to believe otherwise or to believe, dif- uh, believe Jesus' claims, to, to, to live a life that recognizes those claims? I'm going to give you just three quick pieces of evidence for the resurrection. There's lots of books written on this, lots of good reasons, uh, but I'm just going to give you three. The first is the empty tomb. Now, number one, just the empty tomb itself. But uh, why is this important? Well, because we know that there were other people who died around Jesus' time, that they were buried, and people knew where their tomb was. What's interesting is no one marked Jesus' tomb out for hundreds of years after his life. And you would think that a teacher with the impact that Jesus had, we're talking 50% of the Roman world within 300 years of his life, 20 million people or 30 million people coming to know, coming to claim him as their Lord, following him. you think that if he had died, that someone would want to mark out his grave and go to it. But that doesn't happen until years later when the church is co-opted by the Roman Empire. Number two. Again, this goes back to our historical criterion, motive. Let's look at how the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus is recorded. Each of the gospel writers records that the first people to see Jesus alive are women, which is awesome, right? But here's the thing. First century Judaism, patriarchal society, in fact, at that time, not just in Judaism, in Hellenistic Greek culture too, women were so devalued in society that their testimony was not even considered valid in a court. Aren't you glad you live in 2019, ladies? Yes, okay. (laughs) Um, my point here is that, uh, that there, if there was any motive to change something, uh, the motive would have been to not put women as the primary witnesses. You would want to put men. You would want to make your case as clear as possible. And yet, each of the gospel writers records that the first people to see Jesus was women. And they're tipping their hat and saying, these are eyewitnesses. These are people that you can go and check stuff with. No motivation for that. Finally, and again, we've, we've talked about this before, but the impact of Jesus' followers People just don't die for a hoax. And so this leads me to believe, and I hope it leads you to believe too, that we have more than enough evidence to point to the reasonableness of the belief of the Christian movement. And the good news is is that it overwhelmingly shows that Jesus is indeed who he claims 
and that he did what he claimed. And if that is true, it can absolutely transform your life. I want to finish off by just talking about this transformation, and I won't be long here. I want to just tell you one quick story. There's a couple I read about recently. Their name were Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. They lived in the early, kind of mid-1900s. Uh, they were followers of Jesus, and they felt so uh, impacted by their experience of him that they felt every person needed to know this good news message, to have the hope that they had. And so they endeavored to go to people who had not yet heard that message. And so they moved to Ecuador, where they heard about a tribe of people who uh, lived in isolation and were hostile to outsiders. And they spent several years learning the trade language of the region. And finally, they started uh, flying into this remote spot in the jungle, and they would leave gifts in the hopes that they could build a relationship with this community. And over time, it looked like this community was going to embrace them. They got to meet a couple of people, and they said, okay, I think it's time. So Jim and three of his, his other friends flew down to this beach, waiting for a delegation to come out from this village. Instead, what came out was a war party. And speared all four of those men to death. Now I want you just to think, put yourself in the place of Elizabeth Elliot, sitting there waiting to hear news of her husband's successful connection with his tribe of people, and instead she gets a body ripped to shreds through spears. What would you feel in that moment? I know for myself, if someone did that to my family, I would feel hatred, anger, and I might want them to burn in hell for all of eternity. And yet this is not the reaction that Elizabeth has. Two years later, she goes with her orphan child. They live in this village. They share life. They live as one of the villagers and they teach them about what they have learned about Jesus. And it completely changes and transforms that community. Let me ask you, what could do that in a person's life? even in my own life. And there are people in this room who have known me for a really long time. I grew up the oldest child, the New Year's baby, as I mentioned earlier. By any stretch of the imagination, it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to imagine uh, what kind of ego and uh, uh, self-centeredness that can breed in a person. And yes, it has truly uh, been there in my life. And yet as I've encountered Jesus, he has transformed me and enabled me to look to others instead of myself and has continually transformed me. I want to leave us here uh, with just a quick video. Uh, and I think it's great to tell you stories, but I actually want you to see the story of how Jesus impacts and transforms a person. You may have been familiar with this in the news. There was a female police officer in the States. She came home one night to what she thought was her apartment, opened the door, and there was a man sitting on what she thought was her couch. She had a firearm on her, pulled it out, shot, and killed him. Turns out, she went to the wrong apartment. Now, that is a tragedy. She went to court. She was in trial. She got convicted of murder. And the boy's brother had a chance to give a victim impact statement. His boy's brother was a follower of Jesus. I want to leave you with this video so that you can see the way that Jesus actually transforms people in the everyday stuff of life. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, 
He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yes. Thank <laughs> you.